I have found out beat news in depth for you. And good evening, everyone. Welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, there's no doubt that the five weeks since our last show have seen some of the greatest gains in LGBT equality in some time. I mean, the Supreme Court struck down the Federal Defense of Marriage Act and in a second decision said that the backers of Prop 8 have no standing to defend their unconstitutional initiative. Same-sex marriages resumed in California and it appears Prop 8 is gone for good. But there's still a great deal of work to do for the LGBT community to gain full equality in our country. And Equality California's Executive Director, John O'Connor, will be here tonight to talk about some of the many issues that they are working on for us. Family law attorney Kina Crocker is back with the second of her four-part series on the legal aspects of LGBT relationships. And on tonight's Outbeat You segment, we'll introduce you to Ted Chalfin, a recent high school graduate from Colorado, who gave a powerful and moving speech at his graduation this last spring. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 28, 2013. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Late Tuesday afternoon, the California Supreme Court denied the second request to halt same-sex marriages in California, this time requested by the San Diego County Clerk, Republican Ernest Dronenberg who was backed by Charles Lee Mandry, a Prop 8 supporter, who donated $10,000 and loaned another $27,000 to the original Prop 8 campaign. Dronenberg argues that the governor doesn't have the authority to order county clerks to issue marriage licenses, and that because the Supreme Court didn't rule on the constitutionality of Prop 8, that it's still somehow valid and should be enforced. Apparently, Mr. Dronenberg hasn't read the federal court decision written by Judge Vaughn Walker that does indeed declare Prop 8 to be unconstitutional, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed. There is currently a federal court order in place preventing the enforcement of Prop 8, but the California Supreme Court will still consider whether or not it applies to all 58 counties in the state. A decision on that question is expected in August. The California Supreme Court must decide if it will take up their case and has asked for additional written arguments by August 1st. So far, clerks in 24 counties throughout California have submitted briefs arguing that it makes sense for their actions with regard to issuing marriage licenses to be guided by state officials so that marriage laws are the same statewide. In the three weeks since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key part of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, Sonoma County same-sex couples newly eligible for benefits are finding there are some limits to the momentum the ruling generated. Bob Holloway, a Sonoma resident and a park ranger for the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, said he received a barrage of email and memos instructing him and others in same-sex marriages how to apply for privileges now due to them. He expected Tuesday to turn in the paperwork needed to extend coverage to his husband, Tom Laughlin. Holloway said, I'm so excited that after 18 years of our marriage that we're finally able to have the opportunity to share my benefits with him. It can probably save us about $600 a month in what we're paying now for private health care insurance. But two key federal agencies, the Veterans Administration and the Social Security Administration, are accepting claims but have yet to begin processing them. And it's unclear when the actual benefits might be doled out. Experts say that part of the delay has to do with the statutes that govern those agencies operating in states like California that recognize same-sex marriage and in the 40 states where only marriages between a man and woman are legally valid. For example, the Department of Defense said military personnel who are married in states that recognize same-sex marriage can receive spousal benefits where they live. They operate on a so-called, quote, place of celebration basis. Others, though, including the Veterans Affairs and Social Security Administration, embrace a, quote, place of residence rule, operating under regulations that deem a marriage valid if the veteran lives in a state that accepts same-sex marriage. Linda Shear, a certified public accountant specializing in tax preparation and planning for people in domestic partnerships and same-sex marriages, said that distinction is critical for anyone who may wed and live in California and then move to a state that doesn't recognize their marriage. There's a lot we still don't know. And the biggest issue is going to be the residence versus celebration idea. What's clear is that neither agency has amended their instructions, forms, and software its co-workers need to process same-sex claims, and they can't say when those preparations will be made. One-time Army nurse Astrid Ortega, 68 years old, 
was nonetheless thrilled with the reception she and her wife and partner of 30 years received last week when they went to the Sonoma County Veterans Services Office for help in changing their veterans' claims to take into account their 2008 marriage. She and her wife, Gordy Weisgerber, 65 years old, were the first same-sex couple to turn up at the office since the DOMA ruling was announced on June 26th, and they've got an abundance of reasons to embrace their newly found eligibility for spousal benefits, mostly financial. But a key triumph for Ortega was the prospect of being buried one day with her wife in the Veterans Cemetery in Rhode Island, where she grew up. Ortega and several friends, other nurses who served in Vietnam at the same time that she did, have made a pact to seek burial at the Exeter Memorial Cemetery, some with her husbands. But until the Supreme Court determined that same-sex spouses must be granted the same federal benefits as spouses of opposite gender couples, the best Ortega could do was to arrange with her nieces to mix their auntie's ashes on the sly so the Cloverdale couple could stay together in death. The couple also filed claims this week with his Social Security office in Santa Rosa so that Weisgerber, a retired retail buyer, could collect the same benefit that an opposite-sex spouse would. Now here's your calendar events for the coming week. On Monday, July 29th and every Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Petaluma Health Center will host an LGBT support group at 1179 North McDowell Boulevard in Petaluma. And also on Monday at 7 p.m., PFLAG Sonoma County will meet at the Knox Presbyterian Church, 1650 West 3rd Street in Santa Rosa. And on Tuesday, July 30th, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., the Transgender North Bay Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street. Now through August 16th, shop and save and support face-to-face Sonoma County AIDS Network by purchasing a Macy's Glam Pass on sale right now. With your $10 donation, you'll receive an all-day savings pass for an extra 15-20% to off, only at Macy's in Santa Rosa Plaza. And finally, Napa Valley College is currently registering students for their LGBT studies program. Classes meet on Monday nights from 6.30 p.m. starting on August 19th. You can learn more by going to napavalley.edu. And if you're a same-sex couple looking for a unique way to get married, we'd love to marry you on one of our upcoming radio shows. We'll provide an officiant, a champagne toast, and a photographer. And of course, you'll get a recording of your entire ceremony. Sign up now on our website at outbeatnews.com. And if you have news and event you'd like to share with our listeners, be sure to tell us about it by going to that same website, outbeatnews.com. And follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Well, the issue of marriage equality has become for many an icon for what LGBT equality means. And of course, we know there are many other civil rights issues facing our community of equal importance. And that's not to take away anything from the true victory we've won in marriage. But the point is, there's still a lot of work to be done. And Equality California is a grassroots organization here in our state that's reviving itself and carrying forward a lot of our ongoing struggle for equality. Our first guest tonight is Equality California's Executive Director, John O'Connor. When he took the helm of Equality California some 18 months ago, the organization was really struggling. But under his leadership, it's returned to a vibrant organization that's very busy making a difference for all of us. John, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, we appreciate your time. Now, you're the new executive director or relatively new director of Equality California. Tell us a little bit about your background and and how you arrived there. So, yeah, somewhat new. I started in December of 2012, so I've been here uh, almost eight months, and it's going quite well. And and I'm glad you asked how I ended up here because it's an important story for me personally in terms of my inspiration to do this job, which can can be very challenging sometimes and very rewarding uh, all of the time. I uh, have been professional in the sort of political nonprofit arena in different capacities for uh, 15 to 20 years, and some of those jobs uh, had direct LGBT uh, community work uh, as a part of the responsibilities. I was the national director at the Gill Foundation. I was the program director of David Geffen's foundation. I worked in AIDS policy back in Washington, D.C., and uh, somewhere along the way, I kind of wore out uh, around the politics, and uh, I decided I would, you know, move into other interests and, and, you know, do my personal life uh, on my personal time and just 
you know, focus on career-related decisions in, in my career, and, and I moved out of the LGBT uh, movement work. And, mm-hmm. and I did a job that was really exciting but kind of exhausted me. I worked for then First Lady Maria Shriver as the founding director of a program called the California Hall of Fame, and I did that work for four years, commuting from Los Angeles to Sacramento, and I loved it, and it was very different than anything I'd done before, and I ended somewhat exhausted. And uh, I took some, you know, I, I rolled off that job uncertain of what I was going to do next, and I, I ended up out in Palm Springs, mm-hmm. uh, having rented a vacation home for a month to rest and relax, and I really, uh, you know, the, the vibe and the pace of it was great, and I loved it, and I was reading in the newspaper one day that the local LGBT community center was looking for a new executive director. They were undergoing a, a, a restructuring, and uh, at the bottom of that, that Joe McCormick from McCormick and Associates was doing the search for them pro bono, and I thought, this is interesting. I've known Joe McCormick for 20 years. I had no idea he had any connection to Palm Springs. And then, as fate would have it, I ran into Joe McCormick, who I hadn't seen in years, uh, that very same day in town, and we got to talking. One thing led to another, and I honestly never came home from my vacation. I stayed out there. I took the job, hmm. and I became the executive director of the LGBT Community Center of the Desert, and uh, a fantastic aligning of all the right elements, a community that was very receptive to what we were doing, a board of directors that was deeply committed, a community that had a lot of strengths as well as a lot of needs, uh, a vision for what the program could be, a community of donors who were passionate about funding work that could be effective to make a difference on the local level. And for the first time in all of the work that I had done as a part of the LGBT movement, I was in direct care and service where I got to know on a personal level the people who were uh, impacted positively by the work. and. Things like an anti-bullying program in the school district, an outreach program to the transgender community, uh, a food bank, um, a counseling center for uh, LGBT people with a specialty for seniors. And the work was fantastic. And I realized uh, in no uncertain terms that the work of the LGBT equality movement is saving people's lives. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, deeply enriching them. So I was inspired. And we were very successful restructuring that organization. And when the Equality California opportunity came to my attention, it was an opportunity to take that inspiration and do it on a bigger level and also to take the experience of restructuring an organization which had a similar set of challenges that Equality California was facing and address those, uh, again, on a a larger scale. So um, I stepped up. Um, I'm so grateful they, they did hire me, and we're, we're having a lot of success, and everything's moving in the right direction here, and it's very exciting. Wow, great story, but, but it kind of sounds like from out of the frying pan and into the fire, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yep, that is, you're right on there. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of change going on, some of it very invisible and a lot of it very visible, especially this last month. We have a very positive Supreme Court decision about DOMA. Proposition 8 has basically been rendered useless with an injunction barring its enforcement. Now in place, marriages have resumed. And yet there's still language in our Constitution defining marriage as being between a man and a woman. Give us your thoughts about the need to put a ballot measure on getting rid of that language once and for all. Mm, I think it's unnecessary. I think as a practical matter, uh, the law working so that loving same-sex couples can if they so choose, marry the person they love and and, uh, participate in the institution of marriage equally with our straight brothers and sisters. I think that's really uh, the bottom line, and and we've achieved that. A ballot initiative is an enormous piece of work uh, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And marriage is very important, and the, the principles that you're talking about, getting that record cleared, Uh, is very important. But marriage is also very important to get out of the way because there are so many pressing issues that our community continues to face. An epidemic of bullying and youth suicide, full equality and inclusion for our transgender uh, community members, 
uh, our seniors face discrimination in nursing homes and long-term care facilities across the state and across the country, almost certainly. The entire arena of health in terms of cultural competency and access to health care, our community suffers from disproportionate uh, uh, care and service in those ways. And immigration, we have a huge opportunity to educate our stakeholders on uh, comprehensive immigration reform and, and to rally uh, for justice to be served in, in that arena. So uh, I think it would be uh, an enormous drain of resources uh, uh, and the wrong decision for us at this time. Yeah. And you're right. There are so many other issues beyond marriage that still need to be resolved in terms of our civil rights. I think marriage has become this sort of icon of what equality means, and it's really only one piece. Talk about some of the other issues now that Equality California is directly involved in. Sure, and thank you for the framing of that question in that way. We are an organization that stands for full equality and nothing less. And of course, marriage is a centerpiece accomplishment, milestone. Uh, the young people who will grow up seeing same-sex couples with relationships that are treated with the same dignity, role models in their life, things that we, uh, you know, as I'm 42 years old, people my age and older people never saw when they were growing up. Uh, the land, uh, the, the um, landslide shift in just uh, our psyches about what it means to be a gay person or a member of the LGBT community will be so deeply impacted by, by the institution of marriage mm -hmm. expanding to be inclusive of same-sex couples. So that, that's amazing. But there are many other things. Like I mentioned, an epidemic of bullying and youth suicide. We, Equality California, sponsored a demand for an audit in California of the, same, uh, of the safe schools legislation that has been passed over the years. Uh, Senator Ricardo Lara sponsored that bill with, with uh, then Assembly Member uh, Betsy Butler, uh, and, mm -hmm. and and that audit is underway by the state auditor now, and they will review how well in the over 1,100 school districts around the state safe schools legislation has been implemented and how well it is being enforced. And I don't think we. We, we haven't seen the report yet. It's coming out next month. It will be a comprehensive um, report with very important data in it. But I think we can anticipate the findings will show kids continue to be bullied and harassed in schools. Uh, rather than being protected from the interactions, they're often punished for them. Uh, they don't feel safe. They're probably not learning in environments like that and the state has failed to protect our young right. people, and it's an outrage. So there's an enormous piece of work to be done there, and we're making plans to amplify the findings of that report as broadly as we can to illuminate the problem in, in a, at a level of detail that we've never been able to before. Well, I think if the latest GLSEN report is any indication of where we're at, you're absolutely right. There is a huge problem that continues in our schools. And there are several pieces of legislation that are connected to this, right? There's the Fair and Inclusive Education Act, and then at the community college level, Assemblyman Block wrote AB 620, which asks all community colleges in the state to do five specific things to make their campuses better for LGBT students. And I can tell you very few, if any of those, have been done in most places. So we have all these laws, but we just haven't made enough progress on them. That's right. So that... that Example is an important one and a current one, but more generally speaking, a shift of resources to the implementation and enforcement of laws that have already been passed is, uh, is part of our vision for the future of how Inequality California remains relevant and effective. Um, and that I talked about the senior issue where a sponsor of a bill authored by Assemblymember Jimmy Gomez here in Los Angeles um, and uh, that bill would require nursing home administrators to receive five hours, just five hours, of cultural competency training on LGBT people when getting their certifications. And, uh, you know, we know about this trend of seniors electing to go back into the closet as they enter these facilities. So this would be, you know, uh, an initial step in beginning to change that dynamic. And there's a lot more work to be done over the years. Data collection 
is a, a piece of work for the future for sure, and it's very wonkish and it's not very sexy and it's hard to get people excited about data collection. Uh, but if they're not counting us, we don't count, right? So That's right. All of the gov- most of the uh, majority of the government-funded demographic surveys on forms and er- all of the many, many, many roles the government plays in our lives does not collect information on whether we're LGBT. So the counties disperse millions and millions and millions of dollars to address disparities in health care based on demographic information. They're not even asking the question, who's LGB or T? Right. So how exactly are we getting uh, uh, our needs addressed by the system? Right. They're not asking who we are and where we are. Um, and the answer is, we're not really. So that's an enormous piece of work for the future as well. Yeah, that's an important one for sure. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Equality California as an organization. It certainly has evolved under your leadership. Talk about what your vision is now for the future. So, um, yes, absolutely. Uh, I have an amazing staff and um, kind of uh, inspiring our staff, inspiring our board, getting everybody together on the same page with a shared vision so that we're all moving in the same direction together, that in the sort of general terms is something big and important that's happened this year. And what that includes is continuing our legacy of powerful legislative advocacy, advancing bills in the legislature in Sacramento uh, for the people of California. And we have a robust package of six bills moving forward this year, AB 1266, which will clarify existing law in the education code around non-discrimination against transgender students that will explicitly make clear that they are allowed to use all facilities and participate in all activities, including sports and and team uh, sex-segregated activities, according to their gender identity. Uh, and that is a, um, a pioneering piece of legislation that's made it through both houses of the legislature and it's on its way to the governor's desk right now. Uh, so that's really important. Uh, another bill we're advancing, uh, SB 323, would eliminate special tax exemptions from youth nonprofit organizations that discriminate. Uh, and it's not that we were singling out the Boy Scouts, it's just that the Boy Scouts are the most visible uh, on, on this issue, having an explicit policy of discrimination, which used to be uh, against young people as well as adults and is now just against adults. Right. But there, there are others as well. And it would ensure, both now as well as in the future, uh, we're not trying to dictate anybody's membership policies, but if they do elect to discriminate, we're saying the state of California does not tolerate discrimination, and we certainly don't fund it with special tax exemptions. So core competency, advancing powerful legislative advocacy with a robust uh, package in Sacramento. Uh, the charitable field work that we do, and when I say charitable, I mean C3, nonprofit, nonpolitical in nature. Uh, the one piece that we have relentlessly worked on in communities all across the state since the uh, failure of the Prop 8 campaign is building public support for marriage equality. Uh, And I'm happy to say that that work is now complete, uh, but our field operation is another core competency, uh, meeting people in the streets at community events, informing them about what is happening legislatively and politically across the state uh, is a key function of this organization and a powerful one. We are out informing people about pieces of legislation that are either in front of the legislature or sitting on the governor's desk, signing postcards, having them make phone calls to the legislator's office, urging that they sign our bills. Uh, And that's a good and important piece uh, of work that will continue. And we're leveraging that field capacity uh, for other work as well now, and I think there's a huge opportunity for us here. For example, with Obamacare and the operationalizing of Covered California, the health exchange, where Anybody will be able to get insurance coverage now, many people for the first time ever in their lives, uh, and with enormous subsidies, subsidy programs available, we have 
rolled out an enormous public education program statewide funded by the California Endowment where we are using our field operation to talk to the most vulnerable people in our community, uh, people who are hard to reach about uh, covered California and the opportunity it represents and the subsidies that they may be eligible for to get as many members of the LGBT community into insurance coverage, uh, as I said many times uh, for the first time in their lives. Wow. And the last piece, which is very important, is our candidate pack. Regardless of any particular piece of legislation, the relevance of an equality organization like Equality California is that we will always need political power. Our adversaries will remain our adversaries for years and years to come. If we look at other movements, let's say the pro-choice movement, they had their landmark Supreme Court victory over 40 years ago, and the political struggles that ensue to this day to protect a woman's right to choose are a great example that we must be sure. vigilant. We may not have a need for any particular piece of legislation at any given moment, but we will always need 100% pro-equality legislators in elected office, and that is the vision for the future. That is where this organization and anybody who cares about LGBT equality in the state of California needs to be. And through our candidate pack, we uh, support candidates to get elected uh, to statewide office only if they have a track record and platform of 100% pro-equality. So, you know, demonstration of having supported marriage equality, a pledge to support our uh, agenda in terms of transgender equality, in terms of addressing uh, disparities in treatment of LGBT seniors, and, and on and on. Uh, and it, that's real political power. That's okay. the pathway to real and lasting political power for us. And that is something we do now, and it is definitely part of my vision to strengthen and expand. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that that's so important. Uh, Jerry Brown is our governor and Kamala Harris is our attorney general. If they weren't in office, I'm quite certain that going into the Supreme Court hearings, California's position would have been much different on Proposition 8. That's right. And the decisive political leadership that they demonstrated on that issue immediately following the release of the Supreme Court's decision made what could have been a very questionable execution smooth, and clear and and supported politically uh, with such strength at the highest level. It really, really helped us. Yeah, no doubt. Well, tell our listeners how they can get involved with Equality California or learn more about what you're doing today with some of the legislative pieces. I know there's a sense of wanting to get involved and be active here more locally. Sure, eqca.org. And the phone numbers are there and emails are there. They can learn about our legislative package. Uh, there are volunteer opportunities for sure. We have uh, lots and lots of volunteer opportunities in the Los Angeles and Southern California region. We're doing some expansion of our health-related work that I described in communities in the Coachella Valley as well as down in San Diego County. And we are expanding our field operation in the San Francisco Bay Area as well. So we have opportunities now, and we'll have an increasing uh, number of them in the future. And those include phone banking opportunities to get on the phone, to call people who are a part of our list, who are dedicated to LGBT equality, and say, hey, the Assembly or the Senate or the governor is considering this bill. Can I patch you through to them right now uh, so that your voice can be heard as a part of the democratic legislative process and tell them this is important to you? Uh, and yeah, we love our volunteers. We, we couldn't do the work we do without our volunteers. And if you missed that website, eqca.org, we'll have a link on our own website at outbeatnews.com. We've been talking with John O'Connor, who is the executive director of Equality California. John, thanks so much for spending your Sunday night with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me on. We'll be back with family law attorney Keena Crocker right after this. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in Sonoma County. 500 of them don't know they have it, so neither do their partners. If you've ever suspected you've been exposed to HIV and want to know whether you're carrying the virus that could lead to AIDS, there's a place you can be tested for free, confidentially, and anonymously with results in just 20 minutes. Call face-to-face at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. 
We want you to know your status. We continue tonight with the second of our four-part series on the legal aspects of LGBT relationships. Joining us again is our expert, Kina Crocker, here in Santa Rosa. Kina, welcome back to Alpi News In-Depth. In our first segment, you told us a lot about domestic partnerships and marriage. And tonight we're going to talk about how you actually go about combining a household. And I would imagine whether or not a couple is married or in a domestic partnership, the legal issues related to moving in with each other you know, it could be a little bit complicated. Uh, let's say that one person starts with an established household that they own, and then, you know, the other partner moves in. How should the deed for that house be handled? Um, if one person moves into a home owned by the other another person, there are things to consider when talking about, essentially, you're changing the deed. Um, people can hold title to property in many different ways. I think first it's important to decide whether you want to include that new person on your deed at all. Um, if you don't, it would be important to talk to that to that partner, your partner, um, about whether a prenuptial agreement should be drafted to protect your interest in the home. Um, if you have already registered as domestic partners, if you've been married in California or married elsewhere, you may want to draft a postnuptial agreement, um, often called a marital agreement, that outlines what interests each person has in the property. If you do want to put the other person on the deed to the home, you would want to consider whether you will have equal interest in the home or some other type of arrangement. If you want equal interest, you may want to consider whether you want the home to automatically go to that other person in the event of your death. In that arrangement, people often hold title as community property with right of survivorship or as joint tenants, which allows for that automatic transfer to happen upon death. I want to get back to the deed for just a second. That's something clearly you should work with an attorney on, right? I mean, that's not something you could just go down to the title company and do, right? Yes, and, you know, unfortunately, I I would recommend that you would see two different types of attorneys. Um, one would be a family law attorney to talk about the consequence of the way that you title a deed in the event of divorce, and then talk to an estate planning attorney to discuss the ramifications of the way you title the deed in the event of death. Important considerations for sure. Talk a little bit about when a couple comes together and they rent property together or they'll move into an apartment together. I would imagine a lot of young couples that want to that move in together to be together uh, would do that. What are some considerations in, in those cases? I think um, renting a house or an apartment is different in that the liabilities issue, um, the liabilities would extend most likely only to the person on the lease if the parties are not registered or married. If they are registered or married, they could both be liable despite both names not being on the lease for things such as rent or damage to the property since when you are a domestic partner or married legally, most debts incurred are joint responsibilities. So what about a couple then, let's say, that wants to buy a house together but they're not married and they're not in a domestic partnership? They simply want to live together. They haven't decided to make that long-term commitment within their relationship, but, you know, they want to invest in property together. What do you recommend? Well, when buying a house together as a couple, if you're not married or in a domestic partnership, you should consider some of the issues we've already discussed regarding what interests you each want in that particular property, whether they be equal interests or not. You should also consider having a written agreement that spells out what happens in the event we break up, how will we deal with this house, and who will be responsible for the loans, etc. Um, a written agreement will really help avoid the he said, he said about what each person is entitled to. And um, we've often heard about a Marvin action where uh, if two parties are not in some sort of a legal union, there still could be a cause of action in a court of law um, regarding what the interests really should be and what, what each party is entitled to. Talk a little bit more about California's community property law and the impact that that has on couples. Um, community property, essentially, the idea is that when you enter into a legal union, um, the idea is that it's an equal partnership. And by because it's an equal partnership, that means that in the event of divorce, your assets, by and large, are equally owned. It, uh, of course, there are exceptions and and separate property agreements and all of that type of thing and the way that you title assets. But generally, the idea is that each person is um, is entitled to half of 
the value of the assets that they have. And they're also each equally responsible for half of all of the debts that have been incurred. Uh, I've heard a lot of couples though talk about a living trust, you know, in terms of, of protecting each other and, and really answering all the questions before whatever tragedy or life event occurs. Tell us about the pros and cons for a couple in having a living trust. A living trust is useful, I think, um, because it's unlike a will. A will goes into effect when you die. A living trust can protect you while you're alive. If, for example, you're unable to handle your own affairs, the living trust states who will act on your behalf. It also helps you avoid the probate process of distributing your property and paying your debts upon your death. Um, You should talk to an estate planning attorney to determine whether you even need one. Um, I think there are situations where if the estate is simple enough, it, it may not require a living trust. And within that living trust, do you also write a will? Is that folded into it? Um, it can be, um, and I'm not an estate planning ex- expert by any means, um, but just from my own experience, a living trust is very useful for the reasons I stated. A will can um, can determine where your assets go upon your death, who inherits from you. Uh, an advanced health care directive is also a good idea as part of your estate planning package because it lays out what you want medically to happen uh, if you're unable to care for yourself and make those particular decisions. Um, in addition, a durable power of attorney is useful because you, in that document, you're telling, um, you're basically stating who can handle your, these decisions um, if you're unable to do so yourself. And I would imagine that could be especially important for LGBT couples because you could find yourself in a situation where no matter how long you've been with your partner and how committed you are to your individual decisions about, let's say, resuscitation, technically, if you don't have that laid out ahead of time, then a parent could come in and override that, right? Yes, and it it, it reminds me of the Terry Schiavo case um, a while ago. For me, it was important to make sure to put this these types of documents together because, yes, in fact the partner could be treated as a complete stranger in that process. And the partner has the most intimate knowledge of what that other person would have wanted to occur. Uh, But then a parent who has not been involved in that person's life for years and years could come in and make those decisions and there would be nothing the other partner could do about it. So absent a marriage, a living trust for a long-term committed couple is really something that that should be considered. I think so, yes. Even uh, domestic partnership you know what we what we are getting used to as LGBT couples is getting every layer of protection possible. Have and it's it's unfortunate because we have to pay so much in attorneys' fees and costs to to create these documents. But yes, I think it's a good idea to have your domestic partnership, have your marriage, have your um, estate planning documents, and that way you cover yourself in any event. You know, another question occurred to me that my partner and I have faced traveling out of state where the, the laws are so different, uh, how important is it to carry a copy of all this with you? You know, I carry a copy of our marriage certificate, a picture of it on my iPhone, just to prove that we have some sort of, of legal marriage status. Should you also keep a scanned copy of a will and, and some of the other important living trust documents with you? I think it's a good idea. You know, you're if, especially when you're traveling out of state in those states that don't recognize that not only not recognize your domestic partnership or your legal marriage, but they have laws that that specifically say we don't recognize anything. We don't recognize your rights to your children. We don't recognize any of those types of things. So it is a good idea to carry these around. And this is what most LGBT couples are doing. Um, And there are I've heard actually that there are companies that will scan all your documents and you can have access to it with just one click. So whether you physically put all those papers in your glove box, um, I think it is a good idea. Kina, thanks again so much for sharing your expertise with us. And we'll be back with the Outbeat Youth segment right after our music break. Here's the late Corey Monteith with Just The Way You Are. Oh, her eyes, her eyes make the stars look like they're not shining. She asked me, do I look okay? I say, 
Joining us, you're listening to Outbeat Now on KRCB FM Windsor, Santa Rosa. On this month's Outbeat Youth segment, we'd like you to meet Ted Chalfin, an amazing young man who recently graduated from high school. This last spring, he was selected by his principal to speak at that graduation ceremony. Here's a bit of what he had to say. I'm going to skip all the cliches I want to rattle off right now and get right to the point. I'm gay. Many, if not most, of the students here today know this. Most of them don't really care. That is exactly the reason why I decided I had to give this speech. Coming out before entering high school was not a decision that I undertook lightly. I had heard the horror stories about how this could be the worst four years of a young gay man's life. I was fully prepared to endure taunting, social ostracization, and even physical abuse. But I knew what I knew, and I couldn't hide it. So, I decided that upon entering Fairview, if anybody asked me, I would tell them the truth. Well, Ted, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Hi. It's great to have you here. Now, you're in Boulder, Colorado. Tell us about Fairview High School and uh, where it's located and how many students go there. Uh, Fairview is a public school. It's uh, one of the most beautiful locations in Boulder. It's on the top of a hill. It gives you a great view of the mountains. I guess that's why they call it Fairview. It's got about 2,100 students this year. Next year, it'll probably have about 2,200 because as soon as our graduating class was in, they started increasing the number of people they enroll there. Sounds amazing. Now, did you grow up in Boulder? Uh, I moved out here right before I started kindergarten. I, I was born in Los Angeles. But yeah, I've, I've attended uh, all my public school here, and I'm also going to be going to the University of Colorado at Boulder. So all of my education will be done here in Boulder. Fantastic. Now, you just graduated in May, and you were able to deliver an incredible speech. I think at last count, it had way over 41,000 views on YouTube. How did you get selected to do the graduation speech? Fairview has a situation where there's, there's no valed, valedictorian because there's a pretty big group of people who are near the top in GPA. So instead, what they do is they have the school officers, like class president and stuff like that, but they also have an open audition process where two speakers from the general student body will be selected to speak. And because a lot of people don't like public speaking, and because I do, I thought I would have a decent chance at it. So I auditioned. There were about eight people who auditioned. They cut that in half, called four of us back, and then they cut it in half again. And I wound up getting the spot with one other guy. Good for you. And the start of your speech was so direct and so powerful. I mean, how did you, what inspired you to choose those words? Well, honestly, I knew that everybody else was going to be talking a lot about how, every, how we've made it and how it's 
the future is here and all those kind of, I don't want to say cliches, but those sayings that you expect to hear in a high school graduation speech. And mine, A, I was under a, a, a time limit that I already went way over. It's supposed to be a three-minute speech. So I had to actually cut a lot of what I wanted to say. But I didn't want to waste any time. I wanted to make sure that I spent the most time possible talking about what the body of the speech was about. So I didn't feel like, you know, an opening joke would have really helped my cause at all. I felt like it didn't really pay to be anything but direct. And did you have to get the content approved by anybody ahead of time? Yeah, I had to. I I mean, there was the audition process, so that was one thing. I also had to send a copy of the speech to our principal before that. And that was actually one of the coolest things that happened because he said uh, not only was it his favorite speech of the year, but that it was the favorite speech that he'd read in all of his nine years that he's been principal here. So that was amazing to hear. And then he also told me that he showed the speech uh, to a gay friend of his who was unable to come out in high school and that uh, his friend was, was really impacted by the speech. So that, to me, was a huge vote of confidence. It made me really nervous before I went up there. But, yeah, so I did have to get it approved, but that actually wound up being um, one of the more interesting aspects of the whole thing. It made me feel like maybe this could actually have a reach beyond just me and my peers. That's amazing. And I'm sure you've you know, heard news stories about some other young people around your age in the country who are struggling with their schools. You know, there have been several articles about uh, transgender kids who their school refused to acknowledge their gender identity. In fact, refused to even use their their name properly. And you've come from a school who embraced, you know, you expressing who you are and talking about that at graduation speech. Did you find that odd? Again, it was a little surprising given what I knew the rap on high school to be. But I don't know. I felt like I came out of a really good group of kids, core group of friends who I was never particularly worried about. And then, obviously, th- there's going to be, in any large population, there's going to be people who, who are against it, but a majority of those people just kept their mouths shut, um, which was, which was you know, good, good for them, and also, I think, indicative of, of the larger climate. And that, the thing that amazed me is, is, obviously, there's a lot of places where my story would not have been possible still in this day and age. But to me, it's not like it has to be happening everywhere right now. The fact that it can happen anywhere to anybody means that we're making real progress because I don't think that it would have been possible to happen anywhere 10, 20 years ago. I agree, and I think there are many places in this country that w- would not be possible today. Yeah. You know, uh, And it really says a lot about your principal and about the leadership at the school and the student body as a whole being so accepting and supportive. I mean, you got a huge round of applause with your speech, and it's clear that you were very, very accepted. Yeah, it was, it was really... I wasn't particularly nervous. I knew that maybe there would be, obviously, a percentage who weren't going to agree with what I was saying or, or, or feel the message I was trying to give, but I knew that the majority of people who were going to be with me would be large enough that if anybody had a problem with it, that they weren't going to feel like they needed to vocally express that. So I really wasn't worried about getting booed or, or, or shouted down or anything like that. To me, I never really crossed my mind. I mean, it crossed my mind, but it wasn't a real concern of mine because I know that the climate here is, is pretty amazing and that the majority would definitely um, overwhelm any, any negative minority that would try to make itself known. Sure. Let's go back to when you first came out. Our listeners always enjoy hearing those stories, and I think they can be particularly inspirational. If I recall, it was your freshman year? It was, it was summer before my freshman year. Okay, yeah. summer before your freshman year. Tell us about that experience and how you, and how you came out. Well, I told my uh, parents first, and that was actually before the end of eighth grade. And then I started to tell a, a you know, small group of my closest friends at the beginning of that summer, and then, you know, with 14-year-olds being who they are, I knew that the information would probably spread uh, throughout the group of people who knew me. And then once I entered high school, obviously, there were a lot of new people. So I just figured, I mean, I'm not going to go around, you know, wearing a T-shirt or, or a sign, and I'm not going to shout it out to everybody. But if anybody asks me or if it comes up in conversation, I just said that I'm not going to lie about it. And... To me, the whole thing was 
obviously it wasn't easy, but I didn't have any particularly negative experience where I told somebody and they just told me, hey, man, that's not right, or I don't think we should be friends anymore. Again, I've been, I've been incredibly lucky, and I recognize that, but most of my friends, um, and again, most of the people who I didn't even know particularly well, were just very, very cool with it, and that's, that's something that I'm really, really thankful for. And I think it's also unusual you chose to tell your parents first. Most young people that I've talked to tell a close friend first, and then once they get sort of a network supported, then they go to their parents. I think that says a lot about your relationship with your parents. How did they react? My parents reacted very well. Um, there is, there's, there's a gay person um, not that far back in our family who, um, on my mom's side who she knows very well. Um, so that was probably a help for her. She's also, the reason why I wound up telling her first is not really because I wanted to tell her, but because she's a psychologist and she kind of got it out of me. Um, not, not like grilling me or pressuring me, but it was just kind of, you know, they, they, have, they have methods to get you to, you know, say what's on your mind. <laughs> so uh, it, I wouldn't say it happened by accident, but it just kind of, we were talking one day and the conversation just kind of led there and it just kind of happened. So then my dad was second and he was equally fine with it. He's a very open-minded, accepting person. So, again, just incredibly lucky there. So it sounds like your mom maybe had some clues or some thoughts about it beforehand. I mean, she always had accepted that it would be a possibility because she was never really under the impression that it was something that can be learned. She was always convinced that it was something that was um, something you were born with. So she knew that there would always be a chance that any child she would have. And, and I'm, I don't know with this whole theory about, you know, the more children you have, the more likely they are to be gay. I'm first and only born. But um, so she always knew there would be a, a a chance. So she was basically fine with it. It's not like I ever really gave off any you know any red flags. It was just maybe I mean other than conversations we'd had where I said you know where I may have revealed that I wasn't necessarily feeling the way about girls that I felt I should be. But I, I never really acted any in any manner that would really um, give it away to her. But I guess by the time that we finally wound up having the conversation where I told her, um, it it had become clear through, I guess, maybe things that I'd said in conversation to her, at least, by her, you know, magical, psychological, deductive powers that, that maybe there was something going on there. Well, but um, there, there wasn't any huge behavioral clues. Sure. Well, good for them for being supportive. I mean, I, I applaud that because it's obviously made a huge difference for you and in, in who you've become. Oh, absolutely. There's no way that I would have been able to give that speech if I didn't have supportive parents. Fantastic. So let's go back to your school. Was there a gay-straight alliance there while you were there? Yes, there was. And I was a member, not a leader, for um, a semester in junior year. But it, honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't really my thing. I've, I've, never really, I've never really liked labels. I mean, it's not, and I, I'm very proud to be gay and, and, and wouldn't change it now if I were given the opportunity. But it's just like the thing when when I did when I did the play, you know, they you know people started calling me a thespian, and I just kind of kind of reject stuff like that. I just feel like I'm, um, you know, I'm just a guy who does stuff, and that's all part of who I am. I, I never really pictured myself as as a you know as a crusader for for rights, and so it's interesting now that this video has come out that that people are, you know, have been saying these things about me, uh, these positive things about me, because I honestly just thought of it as something that I, I had to do. But the GSA was something. Um, I had some friends who I knew who were a part of it. Uh, somebody I knew was the head of it. But for me, it just, it just wasn't, my, um, wasn't my thing. Well, tell us about some of the other interests. You mentioned you were in a play uh, in high school. What are the kinds of things that you participate in high school during your years there? Um, yeah, I did, I did the play the last two years, not the musical. Uh, we have a musical and a play. I just did the play. Um, I was I got the lead part this year, which was a lot of fun. And then um, what was the play? Night of the Living Dead, which had never really been adapted to the stage before, so it was a lot of fun um, to kind of do our own thing with it. Um, and then also there's a film program, a burgeoning film program at, at Fairview. Um, there's an IB film class there. IB is International Baccalaureate, it's like AP, but it's an international thing. Uh-huh. And um, we made a film. Um, this September with a script that I wrote that I was also starring in and did ha- it did actually have um, gay themes in it that we entered into a local film festival um, that won so that was probably the the proudest oh, wow. achievement of 
of my years at Fairview, to be honest. This whole recent thing kind of came out of the blue, but the play and, um, and film were, were the two things that kind of dominated the past year for me. So what was the, the film fi- is what I'm going to be going into at CU. Okay. So what's the film called? Uh, the film is called Appearances, and it's on the same YouTube channel that the speech is on. Okay. And, um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a lot of fun. It was, it was made in 24 hours because that, that was the uh, rules of the competition that we were entered in. And it, came, it just came out really well. And it was an idea that I'd had for a while, um, kind of dealing with stereotypes of it was a very it was an effeminate uh, straight man and a very masculine gay guy trying to figure out how to overcome what people thought about them and, and find, you know, and find love. So it's, it's funny. It's kind of like, you know, like a John Hughes style, like it's funny, but it also has a message. Um, and it was just a lot of fun to do. So that was probably the most important thing that I did other than the play this past year. Well, we'll have a link to that on our website at OutBeatNews.com, and you can check out that play. I'll definitely have to look at it myself. So for our listeners who are out there in high school and who are thinking about coming out, give us your best advice. My best advice would be, um, and this is hard because I really, you know, you, you really want people to come out. But my advice would be don't tell anybody unless you're ready to tell more, a lot of people because I... I, I told a friend when I wasn't fully sure that I was 100% gay, but I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm having these, you know, feelings for guys and not for girls, and I don't know what it means. And he went off and told, like, three or four of my closer friends, and that was something I wasn't prepared for, and it was hard to deal with. So my advice, because, you know, if you're in high school, people talk. Right. So my advice would be don't start telling people unless you're really ready for more than just the people you're telling no, that would be the only piece of advice that, that I really learned that I didn't know before, that nobody, that nobody told me. Well, thanks for the great advice, Ted, and congratulations to you. You're really quite an impressive young man. We'll look forward to hearing more about your film career as you get through college and having you back on the air with us on Outbeat Radio. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show for this month. My thanks to our guest tonight, John O'Connor from Equality California, family law attorney Kena Crocker, and of course, Ted Chalfin. Join me next month on Outbeat News In-Depth as we take a look at a new collaborative group of local businesses specializing in same-sex marriage planning. And tune in next week to Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.